Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody. I have it on good authority that eventually, sometime in your life, it's going to stop raining. Uh, that's, that's what I've heard anyway. Maybe even tomorrow. We'll see. I don't, I don't know. This week we had a, a really good opportunity to be up at PMBC with uh, a group of men from the church that were up there for training. We had the School of Theology up there this week. And so you have a group of pastors that teach and a group of men that are uh, preparing for different forms of ministry that were up there. And we had a good representation again up there for, uh, from the, uh, the, the men of our church. And so it was an edifying week and it was a fun week. It's also a tiring week and it's nice to be back. But sometimes when I'm tired, I say things wrong. So um, I may jumble words or whatever, but we might have to do a little extra editing for the podcast this week. Uh, but we'll see. Um, So over the course of the summer months here, we've been looking at this idea of who is God. We've been uh, just taking a look at what Scripture tells us about all different things related to uh, just God's nature, uh, how he's revealed himself to us, the fact that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talked about God's omnipresence. We talked about uh, God's omniscience. We talked about God's omnipotence. And we've been walking through a variety of attributes that God possesses and displays, and another way that you could describe these attributes, if you don't want to use that word, you could also say these are perfections of God. So when we're talking about the fact that, like we did a couple weeks ago, that God is holy, we're not just saying that this is, you know, that he's kind of like this. We're saying he's the perfection of holiness. Last week, when we were talking about God's love and God's justice and God's mercy, we're talking about the fact that God is perfect love, that God is perfect mercy, that God is perfect justice, that all these things are perfect in God. And in many respects, he empowers us to reflect these things in our lives, although some of these attributes that we look at, ultimately only God can be the one that accomplishes them. And today we're looking at two additional attributes of God. We're getting close to the end of our study of this subject, so we have a few more attributes left to go. We're looking at just two today, and today we're talking about the fact that God is righteous and transcendent. So we'll explain those terms in just a moment, but if you would take your Bibles and open up to Psalm 119. We're going to start off by looking there, and then we're going to segue to quite a few other scriptures as well. But Psalm 119, if you ever want to find an easy way to find the book of Psalms, It's usually in the middle of your Bible, depending on how the Bible's printed. So if you just kind of open up right to the middle, you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. And uh, Psalm 119 happens to be the longest chapter in the Bible. There is no chapter of the Bible that is as long as Psalm 119. In fact, I think I read uh, once that Psalm 119 is as long as 22 other Psalms. So just that one Psalm is as long as you you could cram 22 other Psalms in its length. And almost every verse of Psalm 119, if you're, this is just bonus content, but um, almost every verse of Psalm 119 points to the word of God in one way or another. So it speaks of God's word, it speaks of his decrees, it speaks of his statutes, it speaks of his laws, but almost every, there's just like one or two little sections that don't directly state something about the Word of God when you're going through Psalm 119. But the section of Psalm 119 that we're going to start with today, it speaks of the righteousness of God. So Psalm 119, starting with verse 137, I'm going to read down to verse 144. But this is what it says, and it speaks of God's righteousness this way. It says in in verse 137, Righteous are you, O Lord, 
and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today. We're just so grateful for it, Lord. And we pray that as we take a look at it together, that you give us your wisdom, that you give us your understanding, that by your grace, you would help us to grow from it. And Lord, as we study specifically the fact that you are perfectly righteous and that you are perfectly transcendent, Lord, we pray that we would understand these things a little bit more completely because in doing so, we gain a better glimpse of who you are and how you operate. So Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful to have access to it now. And we pray that our minds and our hearts would be open to receiving your counsel from it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the most enjoyable aspects of life is to do something helpful, thoughtful, or kind for somebody else. It's, it's one of the most enjoyable things that we have the privilege to do, that the Lord empowers us to do, to do something helpful or something thoughtful or kind for someone else. And I bring that up because it's one thing to desire to do good, but it's another thing to actually follow through with doing good that you desire to do. Now, not long ago, I had the opportunity to, um, well, we had a family member who had a need. And after discussing a possible remedy to that need with my wife, we decided that there was a specific way we were going to try and help. And uh, so we followed through with that. And as a result, our family member was blessed and encouraged. And so were we. They were blessed. They were encouraged. So were we in the midst of, of the process of actually actively helping them out. And I'm still grateful that we had the privilege to help out in that way. And I bring that up just to kind of set up something we're about to look at in just a second, because this is a pattern that the Lord wants to see at work in our lives, because he's empowering us not to just think about or, or kind of dwell on holy and heavenly things, but also to act on what he's revealing to us. He wants us to act on the very things that he's made clear. We're called to practice righteousness and think about it, not just think about it, right? We're called to actively uh, uh, accomplish something in the righteousness that the Lord enables us to accomplish. But how about this? How can we, so just think about us, let's not think about anybody else right now, let's just talk about us for a moment. How can we practice righteousness when, by nature, we're sinful people? How can we practice righteousness when, by nature, we're sinful people? And how can anything that we do be considered righteous when you think about the fact that all aspects of our lives have been tainted by sin? Now, our God is pure. And our God is far above everything he has created. But still, his righteousness is made available to us. 
And in blessing us with it, he actually remedies this dilemma of how a, a, a person who from birth has been sinful can actually practice righteousness. He makes his righteousness available to us. And we're going to discuss in a moment how he actually does this. So let's begin as we're talking about this idea of God's righteousness as one of his attributes. I want to reread Psalm 119 verse 142. And it says this, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Now, when we think about what God's righteousness is, it has a lot of similarity to God's other attributes. We've been talking about the fact that God is holy and God is good. And wouldn't you, generally speaking, think of holiness, goodness, and righteousness as being kind of the same thing? You know, to a degree, they all sound the same. If you said that a person was, uh, that person really exhibits holiness in their life, or that person really exhibits goodness in their life, or that person really exhibits righteousness in our life, most of the time, as we use those adjectives, we'd probably be saying kind of the same thing in our description. But when we think about God's righteousness, his righteousness is actually an expression of his holiness. We know he's holy, and we know, his, we know that he's good. But we see his holiness and goodness on display through the works of his righteousness. Or let me put it this way. Righteousness is holiness put into action. Righteousness is holiness when you do something with holiness. That's what the Lord's, you know, that's what scripture is talking about when it speaks of the Lord's righteousness. It's holiness that's put into action. It's holiness that something's being done with. So God is good, but we can confidently call him righteous Because he does something with his goodness. He does something with his holiness. He's accomplishing great things for his glory and for our benefit. And it's interesting when you look at the things that the Lord delights in, because one of the things that Scripture makes clear to us is the fact that the Lord delights in displaying his righteousness. That's something that he takes great joy in doing. He delights in displaying righteousness. And we see the righteousness of God displayed in the many different ways that he interacts intentionally with what he's made. We also see the righteousness of God described as being an active expression of his nature toward what he's made in various places in his word. And the Lord does this in a variety of ways. He allows us to come to know him. He shows steadfast love to humanity. And he rules with justice. And the scripture tells us that he delights to do so. Let me show you an example. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, it says, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and know me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the Lord delights in the practicing of his righteousness, he delights to express his righteousness. He expresses his righteousness through allowing us to come to know him, through steadfast love, through righteous judgment. These are all things that the Lord accomplishes for his glory and for our benefit. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to reference it again today because it fits with this idea of the righteousness of God. But God's word tells us that there's going to come a day when mankind will come before him and be judged. Now, we talked about this last week in regard to God's love. And how his love invites us to respond uh, to this idea of his judgment. We also talked about this in regard to uh, the justice of the Lord. But the Lord's going to judge 
righteously. All mankind is going to come before him and be judged, and he will judge righteously. Those who rejected him, Scripture reveals to us, will, will be condemned to an eternity separated from his blessings. Those who trusted in him and then lived out that trust by expressing that trust through faithful obedience and also looking forward to one day seeing him face to face, Scripture tells us that those folks will be judged by the Lord as well and will be rewarded. And God's righteousness will be displayed in the manner in which he judges. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So these are things that we could certainly look forward to if we have a relationship with God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ. But keep in mind that in many places throughout the Word of God, we're encouraged to be righteous like He is. So again, I kind of teased this question a few moments ago, but I want to visit it again. How is that even possible? How is it even possible to even conceive this idea of being righteous like he is? How can a sinful human like, like you and I be righteous like Christ? How's that even possible? And how about, let's, let's add a little bit more pressure to this, okay? Consider some of the things that Jesus said in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 5 in particular, he makes this statement. I don't know if you've ever come across this statement, but he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No pressure. Right? You know, as you're, as you're thinking about your Christian faith, what does Jesus say? You know, what if you only had one verse of the Bible and it was that one? What if it were, no pressure, right? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, did Jesus qualify that or did you just say it? He's just saying it, right? Saying you've got to be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. No pressure. Yikes. How about this? He says this, in that same chapter just earlier. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So your righteousness, my righteousness, it needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and we need to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's fascinating when you come across portions of Scripture like that, because what does it indicate to you even before you dig into it? You look at stuff like that and you start saying things to yourself, that's not possible. That's not possible. And what we mean by that is, I can't accomplish that. That's not something I can accomplish. And I think Christ is trying to make that distinction clear to us. It's like, yeah, of course. No, you can't accomplish that. But that doesn't make it impossible. It just means you can't accomplish it. Somebody else can. In the culture of the time as Jesus was speaking these words. It was assumed by many of the people that were in the culture that if you wanted to talk about the most righteous people you knew, you would point to a, a religious sect uh, among Judaism that was known as, uh, the group was known as the Pharisees. Now in your day-to-day life and in your experience, if you had to point to, you know, who's the, who are the most righteous people you know? Like when I think about that question, some of the people that come to my mind are my grandmothers and my Sunday school teachers growing up. You know, like the most, the most righteous people you know. It's like, all right, well, that, that'd be my grandma, not my grandfathers, okay? I've heard and seen some things, right? Uh, no, they're great guys. But my grandmothers, you know, it's like, all right, well, they, they, I would say they were the most righteous people. And my Sunday school teachers, yeah, they, 
they were pretty righteous. Although I did have that bubble popped a little bit one time during Sunday school where one of my Sunday school teachers used a profanity when I was a teenager. And she said, you know what word I've always struggled with? She's like, I'm trying so hard not to say blank. And I'm like, well, you, just, you just said it. If you're, you're not trying very hard because you could have abbreviated. You could have just given the letter. You don't have to actually say the word. But I remember at the time, I was trying to clean up my language. I was a teenager. And it was kind of a stumbling block for me because as she said it, I was like, well, it's been since October since I've said that word for you. It's been one second, right? It's like, so I don't know. Maybe even a Sunday school teacher isn't as righteous as we want them to be. But in the culture of the time, in the culture of the time, if you lived during the era in which Jesus was accomplishing his earthly ministry, um, you would probably point, most people would probably point to the Pharisees and say, these are the most righteous people we knew. And from all external standards, that would seem to be the case. You would look at them and you would say, no, they, they, fulfill, they have like a code. They have a code by which they're living. They have, uh, you know, just a, a way that they're going about life. And, and it's very visible and it's very obvious that these are men that are trying to walk in righteousness. But Jesus can see the heart. And one of the things that Jesus made abundantly clear that really irritated the Pharisees, and this is why they championed and cheered him being executed, uh, partly anyway. Um, but one of the things that Jesus made clear was that the Pharisees primarily were seeking the praise of men, that their righteousness was an external righteousness that didn't mesh with an internal righteousness. They were seeking the praise of men. Their deeds of righteousness were mainly attempts to be lavished with the praise that, that should have been given to God. So basically, you know, our lives, we're supposed to be spending our lives giving the Lord praise, and these Pharisees wanted the praise that belonged to God in the midst of their culture. So their acts of righteousness were basically deeds to be lavished in praise by men, praise that should have gone to God. So Jesus, in the statements that he made, he was telling us that our righteousness needs to be more than just external. It needs to be deeper than that. It can't just be a righteousness that is, that is external. It's got to have a deeper foundation than that. Otherwise, it's not righteousness at all, is what he's saying. You know, he's telling us that our righteousness needs to have this internal component. We need the internal righteousness of God in our lives so that our actions and our motivations will be empowered by his grace and intended for his glory, not our own. So how is the righteousness of God obtained? Again, we started with this premise that we're all people who struggle with sin. Every single one of us, even your grandmother, even your Sunday school teacher. We all struggle with these things. So how can righteousness become part of our lives? You know, our sinfulness prevents us from being able to earn it. Our sinfulness prevents us from being able to deserve it. But it can be given to us as a gift. So again, as we're thinking about this righteousness of God, the fact that God is perfectly righteous, that he expresses his holiness through these acts of benevolence, and then he invites us to copy him and mimic him. But yet we struggle with this idea, Lord, I'm a sinful person. How can I actually do something that is righteous in your sight? Again, our sinfulness prevents us from being able to deserve it. And our sinfulness prevents us from being able to earn it. But it can be given to us as a gift. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are given the righteousness of Christ. 
Theologians have a term for this. It's called imputed righteousness. It's what they tend to call imputed righteousness, which means righteousness that is attributed to us or righteousness that is added to our account. That's what imputed righteousness is. And it's interesting when we consider the fact that through faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness was then attributed to us or added to our account because something else was happening at that very same time. As the righteousness of Christ was being attributed to us, our sin was being attributed to him. That's the transaction that was taking place. His righteousness was imputed to us and our sin was imputed to him. So there he was, bearing our imputed sin on the cross while also blessing us with the gift of his righteousness as we come to faith in him. It's explained in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. But it says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Meaning any one of us who will believe in Jesus Christ will be gifted with the righteousness of Christ. It will be imputed to our account, while at the same time our sin is imputed to him. Isn't it amazing that God would make that kind of trade? Do you ever make a trade that afterward you're like, that was a bad trade. That was not worth it. Why did I make that trade? And then you look at this trade that the Lord was willing to make. He gives you his righteousness, you give him your sin. It seems beyond comprehension, doesn't it? That a holy, righteous God would take our sin upon himself so that he could generously and lavishly bless us with his righteousness. But the truth is, if he didn't do so, we would have no hope. If you were not blessed with the righteousness of Christ, you could look forward to the future with one emotion, dread. Because without the righteousness of Christ, when you and I stand before the holy throne of our righteous judge, for the throne of God, we would have one expectation, and that's condemnation. Can you imagine if the only thing you had to look forward to in the future was condemnation? And that the only thing you'd be able to say is, Lord, you're completely righteous in your judgment. I do deserve to be condemned. But yet what he's done is he's given us the righteousness of Christ. He's imputed the righteousness of Christ to our account the moment we believed in Jesus. And our sin was then imputed to Jesus. So now when we stand before the throne of God someday, what happens? Well, he looks at us not for our sin because our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. He looks at us and says, I declare you righteous. You've been declared righteous. You are righteous in my sight. And instead of going into eternity condemned, we go into eternity welcomed and blessed. We didn't deserve it. It's a work that Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. But he took our sin upon himself and he blessed us with the gift of his righteousness. And if he did not do that, if this attribute of God was not expressed toward us in that kind of way, we would have zero hope for the future. We would have nothing to look forward to. I like having things to look forward to. In fact, I purposely strategically place them on my calendar. You know, the, I, I know you're sick of me saying this, okay? I know it, I know it, I know it. Well, maybe not all of you are. 
But obviously, like my happy place is what? Knobles, right? I just love going there, all right? I know someday I'm going to grow up. It just hasn't happened yet. And I get excited about it. When we first moved down here, the first summer we were down here, um, we didn't go there. We're like, nah, it's too far away now. We don't live anywhere near it. We used to live near it. And then I was like, all right, that summer stunk. It's like, we didn't even go there. It's like, I know that it's three hours away, but we got to start going there. And so the next summer we went twice. We're like, all right, let's go up. I know it's three hours one way, but we drove up. We went there and then we drove back exhausted. Because when you're there, you, you walk like 12 miles by the time the day's done. And then you drive back. But we made it. My wife keeps me awake the whole time. We've got a good system. I admit and confess when I'm uh, struggling with fatigue. I try not to be proud about it. And then she just like nudges me or scratches my arm or we stop and get coffee. We make it back. It's my happy place. And I said to her this year, I was like, hey, we've had some tough things happen recently. So uh, we've gotten in the habit of going to Knobles once a month. I was like, so, you know, all right, we go to Knobles three times in a summer. That's pretty good. But I think this needs to be a four-time summer. This needs to be a four-time. We, we, we got it. And so we put it in the calendar. And on Friday, we went for the fourth time. A fourth time we went there. And we tried new foods that we hadn't even tried there before. And it made me happy. And I liked it. And I like having good stuff on my calendar to look forward to. And I purposely put it in there uh, that we can just kind of look forward to it. I just like thinking about what's coming up when it's something fun or relaxing or enjoyable or a time we get together with family. I like it. Could you imagine if you had absolutely nothing to look forward to beyond your time on this earth? That if your calendar for your eternal, eternal future had no happy place, had no joy, had nothing good to look forward to, but because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to your account, you're going to stand before the throne of God someday if you truly believe in Jesus Christ. You're going to stand before that throne. And you're going to be welcomed into his kingdom for all eternity. And you have that to look forward to. That's a gift. And isn't it wonderful that the Lord would express his holiness toward us in this kind of way by imputing righteousness to our account, that he would practice his goodness, that he would practice his holiness in righteousness and blessing you and me in that kind of way. And we know we don't deserve it, but we still get it. What a gift. You know, when we're talking about these, these attributes of God, we're not just talking about these static things that are just head knowledge that don't get uh, uh, practiced or utilized and that the, the Lord doesn't somehow use to bless us. He actively blesses us through these attributes that he possesses in their perfection. And the scripture told us, just like we, we saw in, in Jeremiah 9, that he delights to do so. It's not a burden to him to do so. He delights to do this. He loves knowing that he's given you something to look forward to. He loves watching his grace accomplish things in your life that your flesh could not accomplish. Our Heavenly Father delights to do this for us. What a gift to be declared completely righteous in his sight. Well, Scripture tells us something else about the Lord. It reveals that he's also transcendent. Well, what does that mean? What are we talking about when we say God is righteous and then we also talk about God being transcendent? That's a word we maybe sometimes use, but not always. Let me read for us from Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, it tells us a little bit more about the Lord. And it tells us, it says, and this is, you know, the Lord being quoted. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So again, I highlighted it there to emphasize it. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's that scripture illustrating? It's illustrating the fact that God is transcendent. Now, to say that God is transcendent, what that means, it's the same same thing as saying that that God is above what he has created. And in no way is he dependent on what he has created and made. He's above what he's created, and he's not dependent on his creation. That's what it means when we're talking about the fact that God is transcendent. So God's not dependent on his creation. His creation is dependent on him. There is no other being that is transcendent. You know, transcendence is not something that you can point to another uh, being, you know, someone that's been created and say, say, oh, okay, you know, they're, they're also transcendent. No, this is an attribute. It belongs to God alone. He has it in its perfection, and it belongs to him alone. He is above everything that he has made. Only God can claim that distinction. He's completely superior to everything in the created universe in every way conceivable. Scripture, like we just saw from Isaiah chapter 55, teaches us that the thoughts of God are higher than our thoughts. He knows things that we don't know. He can see every issue from every side. He knows all details about the past and present and future. And he could foresee every possible uh, detail or issue uh, and outcome of every decision ahead of time. Scripture also teaches us that the plans of God are higher than our plans. We tend to make short-term plans with short-term outcomes. And even our so-called long-term plans, do you have any long-term plans? I just talked about my calendar. I've got all sorts of long-term plans. Half of them probably won't even happen. But even the ones that do happen that in my mind I think are long-term plans, they're still short-term plans from the perspective that God operates from. But he, on the other hand, reveals in his word that he has a perfect plan that is far superior to anything any one of us can plan. He's orchestrating things that would never naturally be perceived from our perspective with the long-term goal that many will come to faith in Jesus Christ and will forever give him glory. Scripture also teaches us that the motives of God are higher than our motives. Our motives are often corrupted by the presence of sin, and the presence of selfishness. But God's motives are pure. God's motives are incorruptible. He is sovereign over his creation, and he's acting for our benefit, and his motives are always completely holy and completely good. And again, it's important to be clear that God is above everything he has created, and no created being can share that distinction. But it's also wise to gain an understanding of the fact that the Lord invites us to adopt this way of thinking as our own. That's the Father's will for us. That's His desire for us. That's what Jesus came to this earth to make possible. This is what the Holy Spirit is empowering us to practice. Our lives are being... Think about this in a very personal way. So don't think about this in regard to other people. Think about this in regard to you and your relationship with, with God. Our lives, your life, is being divinely empowered to mirror God's aboveness. Now, I I realize aboveness isn't 
probably a real word, but let's just use it for the sake of argument for a second. Your life is being divinely empowered to mirror God's aboveness. And what I mean by that is this. As people who have been rescued by the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are being encouraged time and time again when we read through the scriptures to stop diving headfirst into pits of worldly sin. Don't dive into it anymore. Don't even dabble your toes into it anymore. Right? Jesus Christ has lifted us up out of that pit. And his word implores us to never return to the mess that he's redeemed us out of. Look at what some of the scriptures tell us. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says this. So think about this. Like, as we're talking about God's transcendence and his aboveness that he wants to see reflected in our lives, it says it this way in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things that are above So our transcendent God who is above, who is superior to all things, is telling you and me to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are of this earth, the scripture says. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, you have new life in Christ. The old you died. The moment you trusted in Christ, that one's done now. You're a new creation in Christ. So since you're a new creation in Christ, empowered by our transcendent God, Set your mind on things that are above. That's what the Apostle Paul, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, was trying to encourage the church at Colossae to grasp. And then in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says it this way in verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk empowered by the Holy Spirit. Walk with a mind that's being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Live your life in such a way that you reflect the power and presence Of the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But if you walk according to the ways of this world, guess what? You will gratify the desires of the flesh. But our transcendent God has invited you to step up with Him, and He's empowered you to do so, to step it up, not to go back into worldliness, but to to live and to think like He's empowered us to think. So we're not consumed with the things of this world that love to drag us down and enslave us. Our transcendent God lives within us. He who is above us invites us to adopt his perspective. He who lifted us up invites us to look up. He who granted us spiritual freedom doesn't ever desire to see us living like slaves to unrighteousness like we were when he first found us. Read something recently about Sam Houston. You know who Sam Houston is? A couple, let's see, well, in Tennessee, they might know Sam Houston, right? At one point, he was governor of Tennessee, but he actually quit. He, he resigned from being governor of Tennessee. Uh, Sam Houston, by the way, he's a big hero in Texas. Anyone from Texas? Oh, yeah, we got one Texan. That's right. That's right. Uh, my sister lived in Texas for a while. And we've learned that Texans are very excited about Texas. You're kind of a quiet person most of the time, but not when I say Texas. That got a, that got a whoo from the back, right? But yeah, at one point, so Sam Houston, so before he was involved in life in Texas, right? Um, he, he lived in Tennessee. His wife left him. He began excessively drinking. He resigned as governor of Tennessee. He went and he lived among the Cherokee Indians for a while. And it got to the point where they just got used to seeing him drunk all the time. And he'd be, just be like, 
like passed out cold on a path somewhere. So they just got used to moving him out of the way. Uh, but then in time, he, he moved to Texas. He's uh, the guy attributed with getting everybody fired up, you know, with his, his you know, phraseology, remember the Alamo, you know, as they're fighting, you know, General Santa Ana's forces, you know, they're fighting the Mexican army led by Santa Ana and, and Sam, you know, <laughs> you have Sam Houston just getting everybody fired up, right, with a whoop, you know, I think is kind of what he did, like a good Texas whoop, right? And in the midst of that season of life, he got remarried and he, he remarried the daughter of a Baptist pastor. He came to faith in Christ. But old habits die hard, don't they? As my Sunday school teacher proved to me, right? Old habits die hard. And Sam Houston apparently had the same issue because at one point he was riding his horse and I guess his horse stumbled and it irritated him so much that I guess he, he just swore at the, the horse. And this is after he had come to faith in Christ and he's finding himself, he's like hearing these words come out of his mouth and the way the story is told, he came under such conviction that he got off the horse. And wherever he was, wherever he was traveling, he actually got down and he knelt down and he confessed that sin to the Lord. Now, the Lord knows our sins ahead of time, right? He knows what we're going to do before we even do it. But he certainly knows what we've done after we've done it. And, um, and he just confessed the sin to the Lord and he asked the Lord to just help him with this. He, you know, it was just like an old habit that he was really struggling with. And he asked the Lord to help him with this because he didn't want to stay stuck in it any longer. He wanted to move past it. He cried out to God for forgiveness. And as the Holy Spirit made him aware of his sin, he confessed it. And I bring that up because we're talking about God's righteousness today. And we're talking about God's transcendence today. And as we finish up, just a couple things I want to say to kind of tie this together. Our transcendent God could have chosen to remain unknown to us, but he didn't do that. Instead, he offers us the righteousness of Christ and he, adopt, or, or he invites us to adopt his manner of thinking as our own, which means we're called, so like Sam Houston illustrated in that kind of context, we're called to be confessors of sin, not embracers of sin. Right? When we notice something in our life, just, just admit it. The Lord already knows it. Just admit it so you can move past it. Sin does not excel in the light. It only excels when we hide it. So if there's something the Lord brings to your attention... Confess it so you can repent of it. We're called to be lovers of righteousness who set our minds on things above because our God who is transcendent, who is above all things, who is superior to all things, welcomes us into his presence. He lifts us up in fellowship with him. So as we finish up, let me just ask this. Just a couple quick thoughts that I want you to maybe internalize for a second. In general, how are you feeling right now? And what I mean is not necessarily just in response to what we've been thinking about and learning about in relation to the Lord, but just in general in life. How have you been feeling lately? How do you feel right now? I bring that up because I think it could be instructive. I like when I ask myself that question because it tends to involve asking some deeper questions of myself. But I think the deeper question we can ask in regard to how are you feeling right now is this. Have you embraced the righteousness of Christ? Or does this world still have you in its grip? Have you embraced the righteousness of Christ? Or does this world still have you in its grip? Meaning, is your mind still caught up in worldly things that really only produce death, disease, and depression? Is your mind still caught up in those things? Or do you embrace the Lord's aboveness, His transcendence, And recognize that he desires to lift you up and gift you with his righteousness. 
And if you've been down in a, in a spot that's not so healthy, could it be, I'm just posing this as a theory, but I want you to do some heart examination here and ask the Lord to show you if this is true. Have you welcomed something into your life that doesn't belong there? Is there something in your thinking or your living that doesn't belong there, that doesn't reflect the righteousness of Christ? And is it producing bad fruit that's dragging you down? If it's there, confess it. He delights to forgive you. He delights to welcome you into his presence. He delights to scrub you up and bless you with his righteousness. This isn't something he wants to withhold from you. He wants to bless you with it. And if there's something that you can identify that's dragging you down, it doesn't need to tether you down any longer. You can find the freedom that you're seeking in Christ. You can find the joy and the, del- the, the delight that your heart craves in Christ. You can rejoice in the righteousness of Christ that he gives you as a gift. And as we embrace that gift, we have our God who invites us to adopt his perspective as our own so that we can begin setting our hearts and our minds on the very things that reflect his heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to just meditate on this, the, these ideas of your attributes, your perfections. These things that you have made abundantly clear are aspects of your nature that you want us to know about. Because, Lord, as we look through your word, we see these things on display. We see your righteousness on display in a variety of ways. We see your transcendence on display. And then we also see that you desire to bless us with your righteousness as a gift. And that you who are above all things also invite us to adopt your mindset. And to allow your mindset to impact the manner in which we interact with one another and see things in this world. Lord, thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not allowing us to just kind of live a dragged down life where just in a spot where the things of this world feel like it's just all stuck all around us and we can't get out of it. Lord, it's so easy for us to to be tempted by the allure of this world, to go about things, to recognize what your word says, but then to think somehow we know better than you and to go our own way. And then we find ourselves asking, why do I feel so down? Why do I feel so depressed? Why do I feel so discouraged? Without doing the introspective work of examining, have I invited something into my life that produces bad fruit? Have I invited something into my life that does not belong here? Something that does not reflect or mirror the heart of Christ? Lord, every one of us has done that. Every one of us struggles with that sort of stuff daily. But we're grateful that we could come before you, that we could confess our sin, knowing that you delight to bless us with the righteousness of Christ. We could look forward to a future where instead of being condemned and cast away from your presence for all eternity, we will be welcomed. You will show us that we are objects of your love. You will show us that we are objects of your mercy through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, these are these are things that aren't just theological things that are useful to understand. It goes beyond that, Lord, because this impacts our living now. And it impacts our future with you. So, Lord, thank you so much for revealing these things to us in your word. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And thank you, Lord, today, as we've reflected on your righteousness and your transcendence, that these 
Again, just, they're not just these boring concepts that we could read about in a theological study guide. Your word has revealed these things about your very nature to us. And you invite us and you empower us to live them out and reflect them. Thank you, Lord, for these blessings. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.